All right, family, it's time to dig into God's word together. Would you find the book of Revelation? It's not hard to find. Just go to the end, all right? If you've gone to the book of Maps, you've gone too far, go back a little bit. You'll find the book of Revelation. If you uh, would rather go new school and use a version app, all the verses we're going to look at this morning are right there in the palm of your hand as well. And so as you're finding Revelation chapter 5, I wanted to interview our worship pastor. This is Joel Carpenter, if you haven't met Joel yet. And... Uh, this is, he's got a cool story. You're getting some whoops, dude. They love you, man. Right, thank you. Nice. I'll pay you later. Yeah. <laughs> so, bro, tell our church family, what did you do before you were our worship pastor? Absolutely. Um, like many worship leaders before me, we um, used to be in rock bands. So before we started working for churches. <laughs> so that's kind of where I got my start. I, uh, in Beaumont, Texas, had a group of friends in Beaumont. Nice. And we were uh, passionate about the Lord, and we were passionate about rock bands. So we loved U2 and Third Eye Blind, all these cool bands. So we were like, let's sing about Jesus, but make it rock and roll. And uh, so for about 10 years, from 16 to 25, 26, I toured the country with my best friends, and we ate Taco Bell, a lot of Taco Bell, and uh, a little more Taco Bell, and slept on youth group floors. So, yeah. Dude, that sounds awesome. Uh, <laughs> so very lucrative. Yeah. <laughs> and you were the lead guitar guy, right? I mean, you're the you're the cool kid. You're the lead guitarist, and okay. And uh, in your band, what was it called? Oh yes, don't YouTube this. The Red Airplanes. The Red Airplanes. Okay. And uh, in your band, you wrote some of the songs, right? Yes, sir. How many How many songs have you written? Uh, somewhere between thirty and forty songs total. Cool, man. And uh, any good ones? Um, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Actually, I'll go ahead. And, there's at least one good one, and then we're going to sing it later. I'll go ahead and let you all know that. Uh, so, okay, tell, speaking about writing a new song, tell, I, I imagine most of us probably haven't written a song, but tell us what goes into writing a song, what inspires you, because you're, like, you're creating art out of thin air, right? So yes. what inspires you to, to write a song like that? Absolutely. Before I say that, I'm interested because this room is full. How many musicians or writers, poem, creatives we have? We have a lot of creative people in our church, and I just love that. I love seeing our worship team grow. Um, and something our worship team, I always tell our team, is that our, our best worship should not be on the stage on Sunday morning that it should be in our personal time yeah. at home. And what we do on Sunday morning when we all come together should just be an overflow of time spent with the Father. Mm, um, amen. So I start there. Um, as a musician, my, my way to connect with the Lord is through um, spending time alone and uh, just playing music. I usually start just by playing some of my favorite songs. Um, and also reading the scripture, um, for example, um, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my strength, my God in whom I trust. Psalm 91, one of my favorite psalms. Um, as I was reading that a few years ago, I thought, why don't, I, why don't we just write about the attributes of God? And so I wrote a song um, called All I Need based off of that verse. Cool. So I, I usually start with inspiration from the Word. Yeah. Um, inspiration from time spent with the Lord. And I do that by 
playing music and by singing to him. And, and as I do that, um, I'm usually inspired because I, I personally feel, I've heard someone say to me one time, um, well, we don't need another worship record. And I just disagree because I think we could write a million songs for a million years and it wouldn't be enough to capture the greatness of our God. Ooh, preach. That's a good word. So dude. I'm dedicated to writing songs for the rest of my life mm. about Jesus. Uh, and I do that by reading his word. Amen. So new revelation needs to, leads to new songs. Yeah? Anyway, thank you, brother. Appreciate thank you. Thank you. Okay, so family, with that, with that knowledge, appreciate you, man. All right. So new revelation leads to new songs. With that knowledge, you're ready for Revelation chapter 5. All right? Here we go. So the book of Revelation, remember, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He gives it to an angel. An angel gives it to the Apostle John, and the Apostle John wrote it down for you. Revelation 5. Here's what John saw. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And then John said, I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Okay, so what's this scroll? What's this scroll all about? I got a scroll in my hand. And, and the, this passage says that God has a scroll in his right hand and it's got seven seals on it. So what's this scroll? Well, beloved, this scroll is essentially the rest of the book of Revelation. It's the revelation of God. It's the the future of the world. Quite frankly, just to be straight, it's God's judgment upon the world and all those who have rejected his son. And it says it's sealed with seven seals, all right? So the way, like, the way it works is, it's got like, when children, when you hear about seals, I don't mean like seals at um, SeaWorld, all right? I mean like tape, all right? So it's got like seven seals. So you open the first seal, you get a little bit of revelation. You open the second seal, you get a little bit more revelation. Third seal, a little bit more. Fourth seal, a little bit more. Fifth, sixth, and then seventh seal, you got all the revelation, all right? Seven is the biblical number of perfection. And so when seven is complete, the revelation is complete, all right? But it's right now it's sealed up. And this could very well be a reference back to the book of Daniel. When Daniel is given a vision of the future, he's given this great revelation of the future by an angel of the Lord. And Daniel says back to the angel of the Lord in, in chapter 12, verse 9, uh, uh, what's this revelation all about? And when is this going to come place? And, and the angel of the Lord says to him in verse nine, go your way, Daniel, for these, world, these words will be kept secret and sealed up until the end time. By the way, beloved, if you're ever studying the book of Revelation, don't study it without the book of Daniel. All right? Like the book of Daniel is like the golf tee and the book of Revelation is the golf ball. All right? The, bo the book of Daniel just tees it up. So in Daniel 12, he says, uh, the angel of the Lord says, um, it's not for you to know right now, Daniel, but I'm going to seal this up until the end time. Well, beloved, it's the end time. You and I get to have a peek into the end time uh, in this seal. But the problem is, did you notice? No one's found worthy to open it. And verse 2 the angel says, who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one, verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth 
is found worthy to open the scroll. It kind of reminds me of the, the whole story of King Arthur and the Excalibur sword. Y'all remember this from British folklore? So just to refresh your memories, there's this king named Uther Pendragon, and he's kind of a wicked, selfish king, but he's in battle, and he gets mortally wounded, but he's got this really special sword called the Excalibur, and as he lies there dying, he decides to stick the sword into a stone, and he says, if I can't have the Excalibur, then no one can, and he sticks it into a stone, and then Merlin the magician says, whoever is able to pull the sword out of the stone, he shall be king. And so what happens is, every year the knights gather around the Excalibur and have this competition to see who can, who can pull the sword out of the stone. Every year the knights come, every year the knights come, and no one is able, no one is found worthy to pull the sword out of the stone until one day. This squire, that's the lowest rank of knight, a squire walks by and he happens, he's not even looking for the sword, but he, he sees the sword and and so he just sort of instinctively reaches out to it and the sword just pops right into his hand. Well, that squire's name was Arthur, King Arthur. And he was found worthy to pull the sword out of the stone because it just so happens that he was actually Uther Pendragon's son who was taken away from him 20 years ago and put into hiding. And so because he was pure in heart and had the pedigree of a king, he was found worthy to take the sword. Well, my beloved, someone who is pure in heart and has the pedigree of a king is about to be found worthy to take the scroll. But the, but, but the scroll is not in a stone, it's in the hand of God. Who is worthy to take a scroll of the revelation of the future from the hand of God? Verse five. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping, behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah the root of David has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Y'all, I'm going to go ahead and let you know, that's Jesus, all right? And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay, so Jesus, both the lion of Judah and the lamb of God, he's both. So in verse six, the angel says it's Jesus, the lion of Judah, who's able to open the scroll. And I get that, I love the images of Jesus being a lion, right? We love. We love, because lions are cool. Lions are one of the very few species in which the males look better than the females. You know what I'm saying? Pretty much birds and lions. I think that's about it, right? Anyway, you know what I'm talking about. We love to think of, I don't know what picture you get in your mind when you think of Jesus, but like the lion of Judah, the, the king of kings and the, the regality and the majesty, the king of the jungle, right? Well, that's verse six, but he's also, when John looks, I think he kind of expects to see a lion, but when John looks, he sees a lamb as if slaughtered with seven horns and seven eyes. Now, I don't know what picture you get in your mind when you think of Jesus, but for me, that's not it. <laughs> so what's going on here? Well, you gotta remember in the book of Revelation, there's just a lot of imagery, all right? It's a book of imagery, and the images teach us things. 
It's kind of like, how many of you ever been to like the state fair and had your caricature done by an artist? You pay 10 bucks, right? And this guy will draw you. And what these, what these artists do is they sort of highlight your uniqueness. If you've ever had this done, they highlight your unique traits. Like unfortunately for this fella, it's his rather large forehead. All right. <laughs> and uh, for the lady, maybe it's her small chin and her big eyelashes. I don't know. But they, they bring out your unique traits, right? They magnify your uniqueness. Well, this image of Jesus with the, with the seven eyes and the seven horns, it's, it's, it's not a selfie, kids, all right? It's more like a caricature where the artist is bringing out Jesus's unique traits. Okay, so what are Jesus's unique traits as the lamb who was slaughtered with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God? Here's my understanding. First of all, as the slaughtered lamb, he is the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world. Because that's what the number seven means. The number seven, again, is a biblical number of perfection. So when we talk about the seven spirits of God, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, is holy, and he's also the slaughtered lamb of God, the Paschal lamb, the promised lamb, the one who is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. Let us in this life, and that's why he and he alone is able to be the one atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. And that's why he and he alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. The lion and the lamb is worthy. And so on this momentous new occasion where our hero steps into the scene and is found worthy to open the scroll, we get a new song. Verse nine. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to break its seals for you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Okay, let's take that new song, the lyrics to that new song, if you will, line by line. First, verse, back in verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and break its seals. Beloved, this is a worship song because Jesus is worthy. When you look at the original language for the word worth, it means uh, fit or entitled. Like in our culture, we'll say, I'm not worthy, right? I'm not worthy. What are we saying? I'm, I don't deserve that. I'm not entitled to that. That doesn't fit me. I'm not worthy. But we also have this phrase in our culture where we'll say like, hey man, you're worth it. I just want you to know you're worth it. Like when... When you do a favor for a friend, right? Or when you sacrifice any of your time, talents, or treasures to, to bless someone else, you know what you're saying to them? Hey man, I just want you to know, I think you're worth it. You're worth it. And beloved, that is the spirit of worship. It's worth-ship. It's whatever you do, whatever sacrifice you make of your time, talents, and treasures for the one who is worth it. At Trinity, we, we define worship as living with an attitude of surrender to God. In other words, it's not just singing songs on Sunday. It's anything you do throughout the week, any sacrifice of your time, talent, and treasure for God in the spirit of you're worth it. That's worship. This is a worship song at first. But this, uh, this worship song is, is predicated upon the fact that Jesus, if you go to the second half of verse 9, sacrificed himself for us. It says, for you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. See, this worship song is now a gospel song. 
In order to appreciate, beloved, what's going on here, I gotta be straight with you about what the Bible says on our natural spiritual condition. Okay, here's the truth. The Bible says that you and I are conceived in iniquity because of the sin of Adam and Eve and every generation after that, we're conceived in iniquity. We're born into sin. Our natural spiritual is sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then the consequence, unfortunately, for that is that the wages of sin is death. So spiritually speaking, we are born spiritually dead. For you are dead and your trespasses and sins, the Bible says. That is our natural spiritual condition. And then on top of that, the book of Hebrews says in chapter 2, because of our sin, that we are enslaved to sin and that we are held in fear. We're like in chains. We're held in chains and gripped by fear of death by the devil. All right? So we're shackled by our sin and we're gripped by the devil in the fear of death. That is our natural spiritual condition. We are enslaved. However... But Jesus came to set us free from that. So if you are a slave, a new person can come along and he can purchase your freedom. And it comes at a cost. That cost is called the ransom. And if that new owner comes and purchases your freedom, he pays the ransom, then he can choose if he wants to, to set you free. That's called redemption. And that's exactly what happens when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. God redeems you. You were a slave. He pays the price uh, for your freedom, which is the ransom, which is the blood of Christ. And then he sets you free. Here's how 1 Peter 1 talks about it. He says, for you, knew, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb, without blemish or defect. He was slaughtered so that you might be set free. He died so that we might live. And I mean truly live. I love that line, the empty way of life handed down to us from your ancestors. I can relate to that. Growing up, to be completely honest, I was handed down an empty way of life. I was handed down the American dream, just to be honest. I had good grades, I had good girls, I was good in sports, I had everything you would want. And I was empty, empty until Jesus came into my life. And here's what happens. When you give your life to Christ, he redeems you, he sets you free. No longer are you enslaved to sin, no longer are you bound in the chains of the fear of death by the devil. Now you're set free. Now the Holy Spirit of God comes into your life. First he, he comes and he, he comes into your life, right? He indwells you and then he seals you, the Bible says, for the day of redemption. He secures you in Christ and then he empowers you and then he fills you and then he leads you and then he gifts you and now you get to serve in, the, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit and as you do that, you're your life matters because you're living your life for other people. You get to make an eternal difference now instead of this empty life where you're trying to fill this void inside yourself living selfishly. Now you realize that the abundant life, the life that is truly life, is living in cooperation with God the Spirit and being a blessing to others. That's life. That's a life that God redeemed you to. Are you with me? And the good news is, I can say to everybody listening, he did this for you. How do I know that? Because the second half of verse 9, he did this for people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. I think that about covers it. He did this for you. I asked the, our, our outreach pastor, Uncle Scott, how many tribes, languages, peoples, and nations are there? And he directed me to this place called the Joshua Project, and according to them, there are 17,443 people groups. 
17,443 people groups. And if I understand this passage correctly, Jesus will redeem at least one person out of all of them. So beloved, get ready to spend eternity with people who don't look like you. There are 17,443 people groups out there and Jesus is gonna redeem at least one person from all of them and we'll be spending eternity together. He is the lion and the lamb, all right? So one final stanza, we've got the worship song, Jesus is worthy. We got the gospel song, Jesus is going to redeem people from every tribe, language, and nation. And now finally, last verse, it's a prophetic song. Verse 10, you have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. All right, hallelujah. This is good stuff. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Let's talk about that first. You have made them into a kingdom and priests. This is what we talk about in seminary. We call it the priesthood of believers. Here's where we get that. First Peter chapter 2 says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Look at that first line again with me. Remember, this is, this is the church he's talking to. You, church, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Would you let that settle in to your heart for just a minute? He's talking to you. There are some churches where they have priests up here and then everybody else down here. My beloved, that's not New Testament, that's Old Testament. The New Testament is the entire church is a royal priesthood. Royal means we're priests of the king. And my beloved, every in the church, every member is a minister, every person is a priest. If you are in Christ, you are a priest. You are a mediator between God and men. You are a minister of God. You are an ambassador of Christ, all right? And the, the good news is, for those of us who are, for those of us who believe, final verse, final phrase, we will reign upon the earth. Now, Pastor Sherm, when is that gonna happen? Well, my understanding of this book is that's gonna happen in what the Bible calls the millennium. If you have your Bibles open, you want to turn to Revelation 20, you can. Otherwise, we'll just put it on the screens. Here's, John is wrapping up his revelation, and here's one of the final things he sees. He says in Revelation 20, verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. My beloved, do you think it's going to get easier to follow Jesus in this world? They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They did not participate in the tyrannical oppression and the government, the one world government and in its economic system. And for doing so, they lost their lives. Many suffer, many will suffer and starve. For those who refused, the Bible says they came to life and here it is, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. 
This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. So let me, this is again, my understanding of the future in prophecy. If you disagree with me, that's okay. We can be friends. We can be church. That's okay. The Lord will straighten you out in glory. All right. So this is my understanding. At any moment, Jesus can come and take his church up to be with him. All right. We call that the rapture. Uh, that those of us who are alive, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those of us who are alive will be caught up with them. Together we'll be with the Lord forever. And then that's gonna, there will be initiation of a period of tribulation on earth, a seven-year period of tribulation where uh, many believers will, well, people will come to faith in Christ, but the, many believers will just suffer tremendously because it's the unveiling of the scroll and God's judgment upon the earth. After that period of seven years, there's gonna be a thousand-year period called the millennium where Jesus will reign over this earth. It's a beautiful picture of this in, in Revelation 19 where Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords comes and he'll be riding on a white horse and all the saints will be riding with him. That's the good news. Hey, beloved, we've gotten a, we've gotten a peak. We've opened the scroll a little bit into the peak of the future and I've got good news, beloved. Jesus wins. And if I, I've got even better news. If you're trusting in him, you're on the winning team too. And that makes all the difference today. Let me explain. Uh, when my kids were growing up, we used to go to TCU football games. And uh, it was more fun back then because we won a lot. <laughs> this is more fun to win. Come on. Anyway, we, so we went to these bowl games. Bowl games are fun. And uh, for sure, one of the most memorable bowl games was this one. Uh, this is, I believe, 2016, January 2016, uh, down in San Antonio at the Alamo Bowl. All right, we're at the Alamo Bowl. Now, here's how the game went. The first half, uh, we're playing Oregon, the Oregon Ducks. And the first half, they smoked us. I mean, smoked us. We were losing 31 to nothing at halftime. It was bad. It was so bad, I went to go get a beer. <laughs> but apparently, I wasn't the only guy who had that thought because the beer line was way too long. I'm like, I don't need a beer that bad. I'm, I'm too impatient. Anyway, but then our coach changed shirts and comes out for the second half and things completely turned around and the second half we started smoking them and we scored and we scored and we scored and finally at the end of the game, it's tied and it goes into overtime and guess what? We won. That's why we're so happy, right? And I'm telling you, being there was stressful. It was so stressful being there. But then after we won, we go home, we order pizza and we buy the DVD. Remember DVDs? Those are like so five years ago. Anyway, so we bought the DVD and then we watched it on DVD. And guess what? It wasn't stressful at all. Because even when they scored, we're like, that's all right. They scored again, that's okay. Why? Because we knew the outcome. We knew that we won. Guess what, beloved? I got good news for you. In overtime, we win. We win. <laughs> so listen, don't let the defeats and difficulties of this life, don't let the, the stresses and the losses of this life get you down too much. You're on the winning team. We win. That's what the new song says. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, you're an awesome God. You're a gracious and merciful God and a powerful God. You are God Almighty. 
And Lord Jesus, you are the lion and the lamb. Man, I love that about you. You are the king of kings and Lord of lords, but also you are the suffering servant. And in your love for us and in your mercy for us, you came and you died so that we might live. So anyone listening this morning, maybe you're like, like me where I was. You're kind of focused on acquiring things for yourself, getting things for yourself, and you're finding that it's just not satisfying. If you're being honest, you're empty. You're spiritually empty. Well, today, Jesus is, I promise you, here, and he's offering himself to you. He's offering to be the ransom for your freedom. So all you got to do just by faith is say, God, just redeem, redeem me. Set me free. I believe in Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection is the payment for my sin. I don't believe it just as a fact of history. I take it personally. It's for me. Set me free from the penalty and power of my sin. Set me free from the shackles of the fear of death. And help me live a life now led by your spirit, empowered by your spirit that matters, that's significant, that is fruitful, that is fulfilling, that is meaningful. Because now I'm living it to build your kingdom and bring you glory and be a blessing to others. Let that be the testimony for the rest of my life. So we thank you for your new revelation that inspires us to sing new songs. And we do that now. In Jesus' name, amen.